1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines uh, Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the Global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-Ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Ecumenism and Independency in World Christianity, Historical Studies in Honor of Brian Stanley, co-edited by Alexander Chow and Emma Wildwood and published by Brill in 2020, is a collection of essays on the entangled nature of ecumenism and independency in the modern global history of Christianity which also demonstrates the transnational connectivity as well as local and contextual expressions of Christianity. This volume, as indicated in the title, pays homage to Brian Stanley, a scholar of world Christian history and professor of world Christianity at the University of Edinburgh, whose work has shaped and influenced scholars around the world. From his first emergence as a lecturer at Spurgeon's College, um, a Baptist theological institution, Stanley has become a prolific writer and has immensely contributed in the understanding of the history of Christianity. From his long list of publications, and just to name a few here, includes The Bible and the Flag, Protestants' Missions and pr- British Imperialism in the 19th and 20th Centuries, The History of the Baptist Missionary Society, 1792-1992, to 1992, the, World the World Missionary Conference, Edinburgh, 1910, The Global Diffusion of Evangelicalism, The Age of Billy Billy Graham and John Stott, And last but not least, Christianity in the 20th Century, A World History, which is considered as Brian Stanley's uh, magnum magnum opus. And to briefly comment, um, our listeners can also find the podcast interview between Brian Stanley and Crawford Gribben in our very own New Books Network on his monograph, uh, Christianity in the 20th Century. Borrowing the words of one of our editors, uh, Brian Stanley's internationally acclaimed historical scholarship on world Christianity has given significant attention to global movements and events as a way of comprehending the modern missionary movement and the churches that have developed as a direct or indirect result of it. As David Bebbington has described in the first chapter of his volume, Brian Stanley is indeed, quote, a pathfinder in assessing the phenomenon of global Christianity that has come into existence during his lifetime," end quote. And befittingly, this very volume has brought together internationally renowned historians and theologians who have worked with Brian Stanley and who have been influenced by his scholarship. So over the course of our conversation, we will take a closer look at this pivotal volume, how both the work of Brian Stanley and the many essays in this book guides the readers in a in examining changes in world Christianity and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this wonderful book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today I'm privileged to talk with Dr. Alexander Chow and Dr. Emma Wildwood, the co-editors of Ecumenism and Independence in World Christianity, um, Historical Studies in honor of Brian Stanley, But before we begin, um, I would like to introduce our two distinguished guests. First, um, Dr. Alexander Chow is Senior Lecturer in Theology and World Christianity in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh and the co-director of the Center for the Study of World Christianity. He is currently the co-editor of the journal Studies in World Christianity by Edinburgh University Press and serves as an editor of Liu Institute series in Chinese Christianities by the University of Notre Dame Press, Dr. Chow's research focuses on Christianity in China, Chinese philosophy and religion, and engages in a broad range of theologies such as contextual theology, especially in East Asia, uh, public theology, and the emerging digital uh, theology. His long list of publication treats multiple topics, which include theology, Christianity, and religion in China, Christian missions, world Christianity, and digital culture. He has also authored two books Theosis, uh, Sino Christian Theology, and the Second Chinese Enlightenment, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2013, and Chinese Public Theology, Generational Shifts and Confucian Imagination in Chinese Christianity by Oxford University Press in 2018. And it was just a couple months ago that his book, co edited by Eastern Law, titled Ecclesial Diversity in Chinese Christianity, was published by uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Our second guest is Emma, uh, Dr. Emma Wildwood, who is senior lecturer in African Christianity and African indigenous religions in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. With Dr. Chow, she serves as the co-editor of the Center for the Study of World Christianity, and is also the co-editor of the journal Studies in World Christianity by Edinburgh University Press. She is currently the co-editor of the book series, Religion in Transforming Africa, uh, published by James Curry Publishers, and the member of the editorial board for the following two journals, um, Exchange Journal for Contemporary Christianities in Context, and also the Journal of the International Association for Mission Studies, published by Brill. Dr. Wildwood's focus, uh, work focuses on religious encounter in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly Christian conversion and the growth of mission-initiated denominations between 1800 and the present day. Her research has also examined the impact of migration on Christianity, Christianity um, Christian identity in the Democratic Republic of Congo, East African revival, and on migration and Christianity in Africa and the United Kingdom. Her experience teaching uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Cambridge has contributed for her to teach and write on a wide spectrum of issues such as the history of Christianity in Africa and African religious diversity. Her published monographs include Migration and Christianity, uh, Migration and Christian Identity in Congo, published by Brill in 2008. And just last year, uh, the monograph, The Mission of Apollo Kivabulaya, Religious Change in the African Great Lakes, 1870 to 1835, published by James Curry Publishers in 2020. So um, after this long introduction, I would still like to re-welcome our very own Dr. Chow and Dr. Wildwood to New Books Networks and World Christianity. And it is a wonderful treat to have the both of you come on the podcast to talk about your book.
0: Thank you very much for having us. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward for, to the conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining me um, on today's podcast interview. I think it'll be great if we can begin our conversation today by getting to know our authors. So do you mind sharing a few words about yourselves, about your background, where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study? Um, I would like to first ask Dr. Chow, would you like to begin?
0: Sure, uh, I'd be glad to begin. I'm a Chinese-American born and raised in Southern California, and I grew up in a region of uh, Los Angeles County known as San Gabriel Valley, or the SGV. When I was growing up there, my family was amongst the first uh, ethnic Chinese in the region. Uh, But today, if you're familiar with the the SGV, it's known for its uh, thriving Asian-American population. Uh, I completed my undergraduate in the University of California, San Diego in computer science, And had a a first career as a software engineer. Uh, But later on, I had a growing interest in theology and studied at Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, then at Regent College in Vancouver, and my PhD in theology at the University of Birmingham in the UK. In terms of our discussion for today, uh, my main fields of interest have been uh, Chinese Christianity and world Christianity. The first of these, I think, uh, partly comes out of my biography as a Chinese-American born into a non-Christian home and later becoming a Christian. Um, I think part of my own discovery of Chinese Christian theology comes out of an examination of what it means to think theologically as a Chinese Christian. The second field that is uh, of world Christianity really came out of necessity, (laughs) I applied for a job uh, here at the University of of Edinburgh uh, that was looking for an early career scholar in world Christianity. Um, While I came to it by accident, uh, I also became hugely interested in the theological implications of uh, this topic, world Christianity.
2: Well, as for me, uh, I come from the the north of England, a county called uh, Yorkshire, um, and perhaps, One of my earliest memories um, was the place where I grew up had a large minority of people from the Caribbean, um, first and my generation, second generation, uh, and uh, I was very influenced by uh, the friends that I had then and also the style of worship. Um, So perhaps that set me on a track for world Christianity, I'm not entirely sure, but I came up to Edinburgh to study um, theology. I uh, also took a a master's uh, here as well. And after that, I went and taught in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, a place called Bunia, right in the the northeast of the country. Um, Prior to teaching there, I'd I'd thought about uh, taking a PhD having taught there for uh, six or seven years i came back to do that phd and um, came to the center for the study of world christianity as we call it today here in edinburgh to do that so in many ways i am a product of the pioneering center that we have here and the study of my phd was very much working with uh, those people i got to know in congo and Um, became eventually that uh, first monograph you mentioned, uh, looking at the way migration changes uh, Christian identity and what migrants also take with them to a new place.
1: Well, thank you so much um, to the both of you for a chance, this opportunity to get to know you both better. Um, a brief follow-up question that I have is, as I've commented in the introduction, um, and as, if, as it is also written in the title of this book, um, this volume celebrates uh, Brian Stanley's contributions. And I think it is important to talk about how Brian Stanley has also influenced the both of you. I know um, Dr. Chow has briefly mentioned um, him coming to um, uh, University of Edinburgh, Um, and how also Brian Stanley has influenced you. We would love to hear that story as well, but um, do you mind sharing with us how um, he has, uh, Brian Stanley has impacted you and your scholarship? And I would like to direct the first answer to Dr. Wildwood.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, I am primarily a a historian like um, Brian Stanley, um, a social historian, and I first met Brian some years before I started my PhD at the Ecclesiastical History Society uh, conference, annual conference here in the UK. Um, and uh, you know he took an interest in this early work I was doing on the East African Revival because he had also uh, written on it. Um, then we, we kind of connected again as I moved down to Cambridge. Uh, and I became involved in the c- committee, the Henry Martin Centre Committee, which became Cambridge Centre for Christianity Worldwide. Um, I taught with Brian um, and eventually I took uh, over the post. When he came up to Edinburgh, I took over his post in, in Cambridge. So I think he has uh, informed my scholarship, but also uh, my career in, in many ways. And there has been... Um, a gentle um, support and in important occasions, um, and I've learned from his teaching style uh, and his organisation of curricula as well. I think in terms of scholarship, the he led uh, the North Atlantic uh, Missiology Project and then Currents in World Christianity from um, from Cambridge, and it was. That scholarship, much of which has found itself into the Erdman series that he edited with Bob Frickenberg, that has been particularly generative. Um, Some of his um, really helpful introductions, the way that he formed some of the conferences. I I only managed to attend one of them, I think one or two of them. Uh, The scholars that he brought together have all been... um, hugely uh, influential in my work. Um, And so I think as he uh, moved from um, this history of missions, which is still very, very important, into thinking about the reception of that history of missions, uh, the adaptation, the change that goes on uh, in in Christian uh, churches, um, that that has been particularly generative.
1: Thank Thank you. Um, Dr. Chow, would you also like to um, speak to how Brian Stanley has also influenced you?
0: Yes, uh, thank you. Um, Well, like I said earlier, it was uh, when I applied uh, to this job in Edinburgh that I uh, was sort of forced to think about uh, world Christianity. Um, Brian was perhaps the first person to ask me to define this word world Christianity, and that was in my job interview. Um, So... You know, warning for all those applying for jobs out there, you know, make sure you know uh, the definition of the words that uh, on on the titles of jobs that you apply for. Um, But but moreover, when I came to Edinburgh, um, I had to come up with uh, new courses uh, for the World Christianity Program here. Uh, That was obviously part of my job. Um, At first, I was thinking maybe I could teach something related to my own research background, uh, which at the time was largely within uh, theology in Chinese theology or uh, Asian Christian theology. Um, but Brian uh, suggested that I widen the scope of my teaching about theology to include other contexts. Um, and this was where when I started to read the works of African Christians such as Kwame Bediako or Mercy Oduyoye, and I began to search for theological writings in other parts of the world. Um, Latin American theologians that I hadn't heard of uh, at the time, such as Rene Padilla, as well as indigenous voices in the Americas and Oceania. Um, In part, I think for Brian, this was an important task because our students in World Christianity um, here in the University of Edinburgh, both at the master's level and the PhD level, come from so many backgrounds and interests, not only Chinese or Asian, uh, focus on Asian Christianity. But I also think that if you look at Brian's own scholarship, he has written about every conceivable context in the world. Uh, it, it's, it's actually quite scary how much he's written. Um, it, it, it's, in many ways, it's a testimony of his scholarship and his interests, when, whenever I've tried to start researching a new topic, and inevitably I encounter one of his essays or, or something that he's written on the subject, but really it also demonstrates how much he, as a scholar of world Christianity, is also so well informed about the world's Christians. And I think in, in, in that way, I'm also um, quite uh, impressed, and, and it, he has impressed quite a lot on my, my own scholarship and my own thinking. And even though I see myself primarily as a, as a theologian in the discipline of theology, um, and Brian would uh, perhaps identify himself chiefly as a historian, um, I think there is a lot of richness that I've gained from his uh, approach to scholarship.
1: Oh, um, thank you um, to the both of you for sharing that. I think, as you mentioned, the magnitude and the brilliance of Brian Stanley's contributions speak for themselves. As I have in my own studies learned so much from his work. Um, And if you're studying in World Christianity, it is without a doubt that you have come across Brian Stanley's name and his publication, whether it is his books or one of his many journal articles. But um, now in speaking on World Christianity, though, I'm also very fortunate to have with me two senior um, lecturers uh, who not only teach World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh, but also co-lead the Center of Study uh, for the Study of World Christianity and also co-edit the Studies of World Christianity Journal. Um, and as we take a step closer to the contents of the very book that we are here to discuss, I thought it would be pertinent to talk about world Christianity. Um, especially for our audience that might be still new to the term world Christianity, um, one can ask: what is world Christianity? Um, Even among scholars, you know, there's still this ongoing discussion on what is World Christianity? Is it an approach? Is it a field? Or is it even a subfield? But um, Dr. Chow and Dr. Wildwood, in your academic research and in your own scholarship, how have you understood World Christianity and what does it mean to study uh, World Christianity? I'm asking this as I think your pers- perspectives will also be very beneficial for students and young emerging scholars of world Christianity. So, do you mind uh, expounding on your understandings of this concept and what it entails, um, Dr. Chow? Would you like to begin?
0: Yeah, I, this is a great question and one that uh, increasingly, uh, si- since that fateful day of my my interview, uh, I've I've been uh, putting more thought into. Um, I think on a popular level, um, world Christianity is the recognition that nearly two-thirds of the world Christian population is now dominated by Africans, Asians, Latin Americans, and indigenous peoples in Western contexts. Um, In many ways, then, world Christianity uh, is a shorthand to speak about the worldwide phenomenon of Christianity. Um, Academically, the term suggests that all these new contexts bring shape to new expressions of Christianity. What mm-hmm. also um, but also that the old ways of studying Christianity needs to be re-examined. And perhaps that that lends itself towards new new methods and new disciplines in, in that encounter. So for instance, if we look at Asia, uh, you know, as as a general uh, uh category, and I know there's a lot of variety and and um differences within the Asian uh, continent and mm. beyond Asia as well. But if, if we talk about Asia, it, it's rarely the case in which we can study Christianity in Asia or Asian Christianity without, for instance, considering the implications of religiously plural societies. Mm. Um, comparatively, while many countries in Africa uh, can boast of 80 to 90% Christian adherency, adherency in Asia, there are few countries with a Christian majority, really with the exception of the Philippines and Timor-Leste. Even a country like South Korea, Catholics and Protestants combined account for less than a third of the population. So world Christianity suggests that new questions and new methods are required in the study of Asian Christianity. Mm. This offers a corrective in a wholesale euro american focus on the study of Christianity. But I think... In terms of both of these matters, that is the statistical shift and the academic shift, um, they slightly overshadow a, a, a different matter, which, which I think is, is uh, perhaps deeper in, in the nature of Christianity. And that is simply that world Christianity is normative Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this in the biblical narrative from Abraham being blessed to become a nation to bless others, Or to the book of Acts, where the Christian religion shifted from the center of Jewish followers in Jerusalem to the center of Gentile followers in Rome. Mm. But we also see this in the early church, where Christianity spreads southward to Africa and eastward to Asia. Hence, at the very core of Christianity is an aspiration to be world Christianity, Mm. to be, shall I say, a blessing to all peoples. So if world Christianity is normative. Christianity it suggests a new way of understanding the implications of Christianity from both popular and scholarly perspectives
1: mm.
0: and you know I I think perhaps uh, I I'm speaking uh, as a, a theologian and and this is sort of my my take on on world Christianity but obviously uh, there's uh, a multitude of ways to look at it
1: thank you uh, dr Chow. um dr. Wildwood would you like to um, answer as
2: well. well, you won't be surprised to hear that uh, Alex and I agree quite a bit <laughs> on what World Christianity is since we work so closely together. Um, but I think uh, in terms of what we might say about the study of World Christianity, um, I've tried to think about where we are at the moment. It may be that the study of World Christianity will shift and change as uh, new concerns arise, um, that should certainly be the case. But I think we've seen that where we are at the moment, we've developed um, an approach to the way that we engage, uh, perhaps as theologians, perhaps as historians, perhaps as as social scientists. that interdisciplinar, interdisciplinarity—that we may, uh, any one scholar may come from from a particular discipline, but will move across disciplines, work with other disciplines—I think is quite important. And so we're looking to we're looking to Christian peoples' practices to Christian thoughts, uh, to the environment in which Christians live uh, and work and worship right across the globe. I think we're very interested in diversity, the diverse expressions of Christian people and willing to pretty much uh, encompass anyone who self-declares as Christian whatever their particular doctrinal position or, or set of practices might be. But we're also interested in interconnectedness, and so I think this has been a, a more recent theme, recognising um, that we, uh, Christians, do connect across the globe, they do move across the globe, um, and uh, these transnational uh, links are important. I think one of the things that a lot of World Christianity scholars do is prioritizing people or places or ideas that on on the margins um, and and often cultural uh, culturally marginal in some way or another. Again, we may see a, a shift uh, in that. Um, I think we. Um, are often committed to engage with Christians worldwide, not simply to study them from a distance, but to be alongside uh, and to engage. Many people who study world Christianity are themselves Christians. Uh, some people are not. But again, there's a sense of encounter and engagement. And then I think... Uh, We prioritise scholarships in other parts of the globe and try and be informed by that because I think scholarship that comes from the World Church um, opens up new possibilities, asks different questions, comes up with different answers simply than scholarship in the West. And that's very important for us to constantly attend to. But nevertheless, I think we see the study of world Christianity is still primarily based in the North Atlantic, um, and that it's kind of serving as a corrective to a Western-centric scholarship that we have seen for so long. So that would be my, my kind of summing up of what we do.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights into your approach and understanding of world Christianity. I'm sure that Um, What you have shared will really expand our knowledge, our listeners' knowledge of world Christianity as well. And kind of now segue into the book itself. Um, It is comprised of uh, 17 chapters with 17 contributors, uh, theologians and historians, and the who's who of history of Christianity and world Christianity and even mission studies. Um, Which all includes a chapter and also includes a chapter by the late Andrew Walsh, the pioneering figure in the field of world Christianity. Um, Our two editors, um, Dr. Chow and Dr. Wildwood, have thoughtfully organized um, the book into three parts. Part one, titled Studying World Christianity. Um, Part two, Christians Working Together. And part three, Pluriform Christianity. Um, All which provide, in a way, historical studies of the richness of the Christian faith in the world church. Um, For my next question, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more on what goes on behind the scenes now making um, this book. I think this serves as a great advantage for our podcast interviews as we have the opportunity to hear what goes on beyond the four corners of the book. Um, What were some of the goals you had in mind for this uh, great volume? And if I may break down this um, broad question into sub questions, I'm curious to know. Um, how did this volume come into fruition? Um, what was your editorial experience like? And as you were editing this volume, who are your intended readers that you had in mind? Um, Dr. Chow, would you like to begin?
0: Sure. Um, well, in in many ways, this book came out uh, quite naturally uh, from the person and the work of Brian Stanley. Uh, the book is a festrift. Uh, that is, it is a volume put together to honor the life and the scholarship of uh, a person, uh, Brian Stanley in this case. And it was on the occasion of his partial retirement from the University of Edinburgh. As such, we wanted to focus on some of the key themes that can be found in Brian's writings, but we also wanted to invite contributors who are personally close to Brian. Um, So as a fester, perhaps uh, that, that second category, the, the contributors, is perhaps less comprehensive around the topics, as we may see in, in a, in a non-Festriff, perhaps. Um, but really, in terms of these themes of ecumenism and independency, um, I mean, Emma may want to uh, speak more about these uh, later, but, but it's safe to say that these two themes are quite pregnant topics that we find in, in Brian's writings from the first book written published in 1990 until his most recent one in 2018 but furthermore we wanted a volume that would push on these twin themes to help broaden our understanding of the tensions which embody the academic study of world Christianity in terms of contributors we are grateful to include some of Brian's mentors uh, such as David Thompson, who is Brian's PhD supervisor, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, Andrew Walls, who uh, many people don't know was uh, the external examiner for Brian's PhD Viva. So it was quite uh, special in many ways to have um, Andrew Walls uh, contribute a chapter. But we are also glad to include some of Brian's collaborators and friends, such as David Bebbington, uh, Robert Frickenberg, Dana Robert, uh, Mark Knoll, um, some scholars, uh, uh, one scholar in particular, Gary Tiedemann, um, wrote and finished his chapter as he was suffering from long-term sickness. Um, and although he did not survive to see uh, the, the text in print, he really wanted to dedicate uh, his energy, what was left of it, to honoring Brian, which, which I think is a testimony by itself. Um, another anticipated contributor was Lamansana uh unfortunately um uh Lamansana passed away before he could write his piece but we were also glad to have contributors from a number of his PhD students and to be honest um I w- wanted to have more essays from PhD students um but this was a bit of a challenge and this it's not a challenge because uh due to the lack of PhD students Brian of course, has supervised many PhD students over his career, covering all sorts of topics from social scientific studies of African Christianity to studies in practical theology and Asian Christianity and so forth. But as the volume was in honor of a historian, we wanted it to focus on historical scholarship in world Christianity. And that that, that was a particular challenge for the the breadth of, of students that that Brian had. Nevertheless, we were glad to include uh, Brian's f- very first PhD student, Sebastian Kim, as well as some of his more recent students, such as Andrew Kaiser and Marina Wang. Needless to say, it was a huge delight editing the volume, and I, I should probably add there that uh, working with Emma is, was was a, a great treat by itself as well. Uh, but. I think well, editing this volume uh, was uh, a, a huge delight, really, because this was a top-notch team of scholars writing contributions about and and in in respect to a scholar who is also a top-notch scholar. Um, and so, even at, even as we are bringing the volume to a close, and and when we announced that it was being published, more and more scholars. Uh, t- came up to us and said, "We wanted to contribute something too. You know how how come you didn't include us?" And and I think <laughs> I think that by itself, um, I mean, deciding who you know uh, who gets added into a volume is is one thing, but but I think it's uh, a huge testimony to Brian's scholarship and also his um, him as a person and as a mentor and a friend that highlight uh, something very beautiful about editing a volume of this sort.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's uh, too much I can add to that. But uh, since this is a kind of warts and all uh, question, I think it's perhaps worth um, reflecting on the kind of structure or the superstructure of this uh, volume because publishers by and large today, will not just publish festschrifts. And they do so with good reason. Uh, there are some marvellous festschrifts out there, but simply a jumble of articles, uh, no matter how good, uh, in recognition of an a, of a eminent scholar, does not, make the books fly off the shelves as far as the publishers are concerned so before we began this task we knew that we would have to have a theme um, something that would both uh, recognise the scholarship that Brian has done and also enable the people we wanted to invite to contribute from the work they were already doing. That's quite tricky uh, so <laughs> uh, alex has already said you know this is very much focused on the historical um, uh, and, and then trying to think well what will enable this range of scholars to pick up the work they're already doing and reflect in a particular way in, a, in, in an original way give us a, a, a new piece of work um, that also connects with what Brian's doing. And that's why we came up with the title or the words Ecumenism and Independency as something that we felt all the people we invited could find some purchase on and something um, that we could reflect on and make a a genuine contribution to scholarship um, that we would hope um, would be informative
1: uh, for other people. Uh, Thank you. Um, Again, another great advantage we have today in talking about this marvelous uh, volume is that both of our editors have also made uh, tremendous contributions in this volume. Uh, Dr. Wildwood, you have provided the introductory chapter and uh, Dr. Chow has provided the last chapter, chapter 17 and the afterward as well. Um, If it is all right with both of you, I have prepared separate questions regarding each of your uh, contributions, and I would like to kind of first begin by directing my question to Dr. Wildwood. Um, Your introductory chapter is actually the same as the title of this book, Uh, Ecumenism and Independence in World Christianity. And here you eloquently trace kind of the outlines of the volume um, and provide groundwork for what this book will offer and how it will benefit those studying world Christianity and it is also here that you specifically unravel, um, I think, as both of you have uh, repeatedly mentioned, the, the two keywords or themes of this volume, which is ecumenism and independency. And how these two terms, even though they may seem contradictory to each other, um, actually serve as a helpful framework in scrutinizing studies in world Christianity. If I may briefly refer to one of your previous publications, Dr. Wildwood, such as your 2008 monograph, uh, Migration and Christian Identity in Congo, I had an opportunity to briefly look over your book. Um, Even though you might not have uh, specifically referred to these terms directly, or your research has also addressed um, these themes of ecumenism and independency as well in the context of Northeast Congo, um, which also echoes how important these themes are and how relevant they are and also in studying world Christianity. So Dr. Wildwood, um, do you mind talking more on these themes of ecumenism and independency and elaborating more on what this volume envisions as it uses these two terms and and how it also relates to uh, Brian Stanley's work?
2: Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's kind of you to mention uh, the monograph and perhaps I'll I'll start uh, there just by saying that looking at mainly the Anglican Church in Northeast Congo, um, its engagement a little bit with the Catholic Church and also with um, the uh, an African independent um, an African inland church from from that uh, African inland mission um, really threw up for me these. Questions about well, actually, what does ecumenism look like? What does being independent or that kind of streak of independency look like in a very different context? And it struck me that the questions uh, that we ask in Europe, um, in Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, or Churches Together in, in England, that I've, I've had uh, work that I've worked with, um, and even in the World Council of Churches around these issues don't quite kind of scratch where it's itching sometimes. So when we came to um, thinking about the theme for this book, I guess those things were in the background of my mind. It seems that ecumenism and independency uh, are words which suggest two distinct impulses that we see throughout the history of Christianity – and we could have if if Brian Stanley hadn't been a kind of modern uh, historian, maybe we would have dealt with these a little differently. But nevertheless, we have a strong desire within Christian movements for unity, for collaboration, for connectivity, whether that be uh, in uh, you know strong centralized or fairly centralized organizations like the, the Catholic Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. Whether it be in the kind of Reformed uh, networks or the Lutheran networks, the Anglican Communion, or whether it be in the kind of sharing of ministries and fellowships within Pentecostal churches, we see those impulses there. But on the other hand, we see also a need for distinction, for plurality. but that those those Christian churches that have made a deliberate cut from a schism, uh, a, a, a move away from another organization because of perhaps doctrinal differences or differences of practice. We see in world Christianity most particularly an awareness of the need for a contextual translation of the gospel. But if if uh, Christianity is to be alive and vibrant in any Uh, context it needs to be embedded in that context it needs to be understood in that context might also critique that context as well Um, but uh, it, it needs to make sense in some way otherwise it has no purchase so we see these ideas of ecumenism and independency as i've described them existing in critical tension with one another and and we also see that there are deep disagreements uh, within churches and institutions that continue to, ma- to maintain a common bond. You know, mm-hmm. how, how can that be? Um, and we find that completely different uh, groups find uh, connections across denominational differences. So I thought as we were discussing this um, Alex and I were thinking that this this is a kind of creative friction friction, not fiction, friction uh, between these impulses was a good lens through which to explore questions of scope and scale and cooperation within world Christianity um, and I think you know in terms of Brian's historical um, perspectives um, you know Uh, his his book on the history of Christianity in the 20th century and um, his um, taking of these case studies and seeing connections um, across the globe and then sometimes quite distinct and different forms of Christianity quite close to each other, geographically speaking, um, kind of gave our collaborators a way in, and quite a number of them used um, his method in that book. Um, And I think what we were also doing by using ecumenism and independency were we weren't wanting to assume a local or non-Western approach to world Christianity, but how an attention to a local contextual approach informs and enriches the attention to the transnational connectivity that we see in in our studies of world Christianity yeah. uh, and all sorts of ideas where independent action forged new solidarities um, and where ecumenism this this apparent unity actually highlights Fisher and all those kind of ideas were part and parcel of what we wanted people to go away and write and think about.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wildwood, for that detailed answer. And I think your introduction really sets the um, groundwork and helps the readers to envision what's going to come next in in the chapters, um, the following chapters uh, of your book. And and once again, thank you for your answer. Um, You've mentioned also transnational um, uh, expressions and here um, are uh, Dr. Chow, in your book, in, uh, in your chapter, chapter 17, titled Urbanization, Diaspora, and the Tenacity of Chinese Evangelicalism, um, you examined the very social history of the Chinese, Chinese Christian diaspora in three contexts. Um, Britain in, in the 1960s and 70s, the United States in the 1970s and 90s, and the urban centers of mainland China in the 1990s and 2010s. Your chapter, Dr. Chow, um, was very fascinating as you draw out evangelicalism as the common denominator in these three unique times and spaces, as you contend that evangelicalism plays a central role uh, for the Chinese Protestants. But what becomes more fascinating is that it is not just a British or American form of evangelicalism that the Chinese Christians adopt, but you direct the readers to see the characteristics of a kind of a transnational um, Chinese uh, Chinese expressions of evangelicalism that is in play. So Dr. Chow here, I want to um, pose the next question to you and it is a two-part question. Um, First, do you mind talking more on your understanding of what Chinese uh, evangelicalism entails? I know that this topic itself can take a whole podcast show, but still, it would be very helpful if you could provide some um, important guidelines or outlines you highlight about Chinese evangelicalism in, your, in the beginning of your chapter, um, because this also serves as kind of like the center pillar um, to your argument. And secondly, I remember in my close reading of your chapter, we see these Formations of networks, these groups and fellowships being established by the Chinese Christian migrants and um, the role it played in establishing Chinese evangelicalism in Britain and the United States. And in the case of mainland China, in the midst of reform movements and the shift from the rural to the urban, we see um, Chinese Christian figures such as Jonathan Chow uh, emerging and also this movement from fundamentalism to even Calvinism taking shape all in um, relation to Chinese evangelicalism. So here I wanted to ask if you could briefly talk about some of the idiosyncrasies uh, of the Chinese evangelicalism that you were able to kind of locate and identify uh, in these three contexts, Dr. Chao.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, First, uh, uh, thank you because you have offered such a close reading of my essay and I'm uh, grateful for these uh, helpful clarifying questions. um, in many ways uh you know when i was writing the the essay i was thinking a whole book can be written on this topic uh, but i'm i'm going to cram so many top so many regions and on, on the central question of uh chinese evangelicalism into one essay uh, so hopefully nobody catches me on that uh but thank you thank you for for your uh, kindness in in uh just a detailed uh reading and, and questions um when i was writing the piece i was thinking about this general description of Chinese Protestantism as being one that is evangelical. And I I think for the most part, this is true, um, that we can describe much of Chinese Protestantism as evangelical. Uh, But then the question that immediately comes from that is, what does that mean, actually? Um, And there are a number of problems with this association. Uh, no less the current debates around what some may call uh, white evangelicalism and the, the various debates in, in the discourse that we have uh, of ex-evangelicalism and whatnot in, in North America, for instance. Uh, but I found it interesting that many scholars tend to default to the so-called Bebbington quadrilateral conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism. Now, Uh, we're we're editing this volume, right? And and I knew very well that uh, David Bebbington himself would be a contributor in this volume. Um, But but at the same time, I wanted to critically think about what this definition entailed, and whether it was actually all that useful for Chinese Christianity. In part, I think a lot of scholars use the Bebbington quadrilateral quite problematically. Um, That is, they use it as the definition for evangelicalism. But we have to remember that um, when David Bevington was writing his book on this topic, he was actually writing about the history of British evangelicalism, which has a a different but related history to American evangelicalism or evangelicalism elsewhere. While yes, uh, Chinese evangelicalism can also be seen to emphasize the Bible, the atoning work of Christ, and the importance of evangelism. Uh, Until recently, Chinese evangelicals have not tended to emphasize uh, one of Bevington's four characteristics, that is, a form of evangelical social activism. I decided to add a fourth characteristic, which brings together two impulses. On the one hand, a kind of Chinese independency or autonomy, and on the other hand, a desire to collaborate with other Chinese evangelicals regardless of ecclesial affiliation. In many ways, this matches the twin themes of the volume, Uh, so I thought it was uh, an appropriate uh, discussion to have in in this volume. Uh, But for my article, I tended to use the word autonomy instead of independency because I don't think the main concern uh, for uh, these Chinese Christians is a separatist impulse that is to be independent from foreign denominationalism per se, but rather a drive by Chinese Christians to address gaps left behind by other Christian leaders. This characteristic of an autonomous yet collaborative ecclesiology can be found in my three examples, and I, I have a very uh, divergent, uh, examples in, in, in my essay, uh, uh, the three being Britain in the 1960s and seventies, the United States in the 1970s through nineties and urban centers of mainland China in the 1990s to the 2010s. But they also develop quite differently, um, because of their contexts for the British and American cases. We see changes in the patterns of Chinese immigration at the end of the 20th century. And because of various immigration policies, um, uh, this this comes out in different ways. In the U.S., this tends to be highly educated Chinese who produce a so-called model minority population, whereas in the U.K., this tended to be a working class population in which by 1985, at least 90% of the Chinese in the U.K. were employed in restaurants or takeaways. Uh, takeaways uh, being the British term for uh, for fast food restaurants, if you will. Um, what we see is that the majority of Christian, uh, po- excuse me, what we see is the, the, that the majority Christian populations in these contexts did not really uh, think about the Chinese in their midst. It would be the Chinese Christians, often with more conservative outlooks who focus on addressing the huge influx of Chinese immigration. But they also recognize that they cannot work alone, and develop national and transnational networks of Chinese Christians. Now, in mainland China, we don't have quite the same ethnic and cultural mix as in the U.S. or the U.K., but we see a similar pattern due to urbanization in the late 1990s and into the 21st century, where Chinese evangelicals, uh, those in in state-sanctioned Three Self Patriotic Movement, as well as in unregistered churches, uh, house churches, all looking for ways to address the needs of those who migrate into urban centers and to connect to broader networks within and outside of China. So what I find about all three of these expressions of Chinese evangelicalism is that while their political experiences are quite different, they all tend to emphasize quite similar impulses. They engage concerns related to home, identity, and belonging, and create a new sense of imagined community known as Chinese evangelicalism. Um, I should probably say that you know th- there's perhaps some similarity in, in other, uh, con- um, other particular expressions of Christianity, not just Chinese um, evangelicalism, but obviously the, the chapter itself was very focused on this uh, specific case study and um, in some ways how that connects to this broader, these broader twin themes of ecumenism and independency.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Um, Chow, in, in enlightening us um, with a better understanding of what Chinese evangelicalism looks like in these specific uh, three case studies, which has um, really provided also a good example of your overarching theme of independency and ecumenism as well. For me, as a doctoral student in the field of world Christianity, I was able to greatly appreciate this volume because it gave me a really great overview of what world Christianity entails, um, some of the important and ongoing uh, discourses regarding world Christianity. And most importantly, it kind of takes us on a journey in visiting various contexts and periods and scrutinizing tensions between, um, I think, what Uh, Dr. Wildwood has put it, the local and the global and the imminent and the transcendent. Um, That is also uh, very important in Brian Stanley's scholarship. Um, I wish that we could have invited all our contributors for a conversation um, because the depth and insight they provide is very invaluable. Um, But if I may just name a few scholars in their chapters... Um, as I think uh, both of you have mentioned Mark Knoll, um, you can see him retracing the significance of the Christian movement across the world at the cusp of the 20th century. Uh, we also see Dana Robert uh, creatively utilizing music as a way of connecting the Western missionary world and the development of Christian identities in, in Asia. Um, we see Marina Wang's um, chapter sheds light on two important figures, Chung Jingyi and V.S. Azariah. Um, who are vital in the development of the ecumenical movement in Asia in the early uh, 20th century? Others whose work are also equally important also emphasize um, the entangled nature of ecumenism and independency in a variety of historic situations around the world. Um, here I want to open up this question to you both, and that is as the editors of this volume, um, what are some of the works or insights within the contributions? here that have also enlightened you. Um, And as co-editors, what are some of the aspects of this book you wish to highlight? Um, So for this question, I would like to ask Dr. Wildwood, would you like to begin?
2: Well, thank you, uh, Byung-ho. I think you've already put your uh, your finger on the nub of this matter that it's actually quite difficult to choose um, because uh, we just have such a rich selection. In this volume, and we are so grateful to all the contributors for writing so thoughtfully um, in response to our invitation. I think perhaps one thing I can uh, highlight I I mentioned already that a number of um, contributors picked up on this comparative method that Brian uses in his World uh, Christianity. History of Christianity in the twentieth century book, and it strikes me that they did so in some really uh, innovative ways. Um, so we have Kevin Ward's chapter where he compares two evangelical revivals, one uh, in East Africa, which is well known, and then one of the revivals in East Asia, and and uh, looks at the way what we can learn by putting those two alongside each other. Um, And it's perhaps interesting as an aside to note that um, how a number of Africanists that we invited, also Dana Robert has written on on Africa, um, chose to write uh, on East Asia. So I think we perhaps see a real turn away from uh, a, a real focus on, on Africa as the study of World Christianity developed, some really, really good scholarship on India and now we're seeing this sort of Chinese turn um, that's been going on for a while but to name another uh, essay that I think um, developed Brian's method in an interesting manner was that um, by Kirsten Kim um, where she looks at mission integrated or autonomous by comparing the World Council of Churches and the Lausanne movement as two organisations that united churches and parachurch organisations. And I think um, what she illuminates there um, is, is fascinating the way in which um, the missionary impulse is still uh, an important study in world Christianity. We can't kind of think about, you know, the modern missionary movement and then, uh, you know, uh, new Christian churches, um, but rather the sense of mission um, goes throughout. And that the way in which Christians focused on mission Uh, form networks and organizations that precisely demonstrate this connectivity uh, that we've been talking about. And I guess uh, just to choose one more, even though it's very difficult to choose, um, I think Sebastian Kim's uh, work um, about the Korean church was also interesting. Again, he compares uh, Minjung theologians and uh, more conservative Christian contributions to the public square in Korea. And I think what he challenges to do is not just to work with our assumptions that uh, sort of liberal political Christianity um, is the only Christianity that is revolutionary or reforming, but to see that in certain circumstances, in certain situations, Um, conservative Christianity can also have that reforming edge and that critical edge uh, into a public sphere and to perhaps understand how those two projects which have often been seen as really quite distinct and opposite in some ways uh, might be a little more complicated when we look at them closely. So just three uh, because it's a a good number uh, to to get us going.
1: (laughs) thank you dr alwood uh, for sharing that um dr Chow, would you like to say a few words as well
0: yes uh i, I think uh, i would agree with uh, emma that you know this this volume had so many great papers uh, great essays within it and it's it's really hard to choose wh- which uh which ones uh, were were most enlightening and uh, because they they were uh in many ways uh quite uh quite a a phenomenal set of of essays uh, that I really enjoyed reading. Um, I mean, in particular, you could you could see this uh, in in some of the the earlier chapters within uh, the volume, uh, such as uh, David Thompson and uh, Mark Knowles' chapters. Which, in many ways, if you read those two chapters alone, they're they're real tour de forces. They're they're like these. I mean, they they really asked themselves, what does ecumenism and independence? excuse me in ecumenism and independency what do they have to do with each other and um, they really uh, both try to demonstrate how they they come into fruition but but also challenge those uh, those themes and I think uh, David Thompson also draws out a little bit more of um, sort of the Catholic uh, dynamics which are a little bit different from uh, or much different from from uh, Protestant uh, dynamics and perhaps one of the uh, my, my misgivings about the volume and um, you know maybe we'll see this in the reviews of the book uh, is is that there's not enough of uh, uh, of Catholic uh, contributions looking at uh, a Catholic Christianity or orthodoxy and and trying to ask questions of how ecumenism and independency differ in those contexts and if these are actually even the the right vocabulary for those contexts um, but I think also, uh, it within the the volume, I I'd, I'd like to highlight two of um the the essays. One uh, and, and both of them are actually by um uh, former PhD students of Brian's, um and are early career scholars in, in uh in many ways. Uh, one was by Andrew Kaiser, and he was looking at um a, a case study of uh, missionary uh, pragmatics, really. Uh, how do missionaries work together in on the mission field when they when there are some practical needs uh, on the on the ground? And I think th- this is actually a really important um, uh, chapter in in that you know oftentimes we think about ecumenism as a theological category or as a you know a, a various uh, ecumenical movements like the WCC or you know uh, maybe in, in evangelical circles Lausanne or you know it, it, there various. Um, huge institutional type of matters, um, but in reality, a lot of the ecumenical impulse is one that comes out of pragmatics—a a need to work together. And I think that that's one of the the nice things that um, Andrew Kaiser's uh, chapter demonstrates that that the uh, that the need the pragmatic matter um, pushes uh, Christians to think through theologically um, what does Church unity mean now. Um, I think the other uh, chapter which I really appreciate and I wanted to highlight is Marina Wang's uh, chapter, which uh, you've already uh, mentioned. And Marina, you know, in in her her, her PhD uh, under Brian Stanley, was focused largely on Chang Jingyi and um, the development of sort of this independency within the Chinese context. But I think what in 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 some ways you could see Marina's work as an extension of Brian's work um that for Brian much of his work um if i could say historically about Brian's work uh, has focused on um uh, the missionary enterprise and how missionaries have debated questions around ecumenism and independence he, although he he does highlight you know ind- indigenous actors as well but for Marina her essay take, takes takes uh, her PhD a step farther and looks at not only Changjin Yi but also Azariah in India, and she she looks at these two indigenous actors who are engaging in similar debates but are asking actually different questions than the missionary actors that they are encountering, um, and and so I think it's is it, that. That essay by itself uh, both extends Brian's work, but also shows how uh, these indigenous actors are shaping um, the scope of Christianity as it's developing in these contexts, but also impacting other thinkers in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, in in particular, uh, that's a really great uh, chapter to read if, uh, if people have the chance to.
1: Well, thank you so much uh, to the both of you for that wonderful answer. I think um, it really helps us to put into perspective the great contributions, um, some which you have highlighted, but which are all, again, equally important uh, in their own right and and have really um, spoke volumes on in regards to uh, not only Brian, Brian Stanley's work, but also in regards to world Christianity. Um, Again, I am very grateful um, to the both of you for your time today in the midst of your busy schedules. I know uh, we're still in the middle of the semester, but thank you once again for taking the time to um, talk about your book. And just as a way of wrapping things up, um, there is a final question that I would like to ask my guests. And that is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and um, what you hope to work on? So um, Dr, uh, Dr. Chow, would you like to uh, begin?
0: Yes. Um, well, in, in, in light of perhaps some of the, uh, my answers uh, to your questions from, from the beginning of the podcast, uh, and especially in, in relation to the impact of Brian Stanley on my own thinking, um, I'm working at the moment on a, um, a single volume uh, systematic theology uh, that draws on the insights from Christians around the globe. Um, so it's trying to push against uh, the theological enterprise, uh, if you will, and um, to suggest uh, possibilities to think through uh, the implications of world Christianity theologically on um, the world church, if you will. Um, so I anticipate in, in, in that uh, volume... Uh, to offer uh, a more systematic argument around my claim that world christianity is a uh, normative christianity
1: thank you uh dr wildwood would you like to share what you're also currently working on and hope to work on in the future
2: yeah thank you so um my project on apollo cuba is almost at an end um but coming out in december all being well is a source book mm. so i with uh, george Bupanga have translated um, Kivu wilaya's writings and writings about him from Luganda into English. And I think it's very important for us in World Christianity to have primary sources, even if they're in translation, um, that show uh, how, how people are writing and thinking uh, and so forth. So um, that, that will be available and uh, as a kind of teaching tool um, very shortly, and I'm hoping to work with the um, Dictionary of African Christian Biography on a short film that, that says something about Kilbalaya. But I do have a, a new project, which is much more contemporary, and that's looking at um, the impact of COVID-19 on uh, faith communities, in particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's our case study and um, trying to bring to attention the way in which um, faith leaders uh, can um, offer support um, in the face of sudden uh, health crises. Uh, Congo is a good example uh, of a country that has lots of experience of dealing with health crises and outbreaks of disease and has some um, insight off the rest of the world, but also and with researchers there thinking about um, how uh, public health might be improved by engaging uh, in a more direct and immediate way um, the faith communities, many of whom are actually supporting the um, hospitals and clinics uh, around the area. So two actually quite distinct projects, but I think they both fit under the in- umbrella uh, of World Christianity.
1: Thank you, uh, Dr. Chow, Dr. Allwood. Um, Those sound like very important and great projects, and I look forward to reading more of your works as well. And once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening to today's episode in which we explored ecumenism and independency in world Christianity, historical studies in honor of Brian Stanley, co-edited by Alexander Chow and Emma Wildwood, and published by Brill in 2020. This is your host, byung Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.